Welcome to Season 2 of History, Books, and Wine. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey and Eliza Knight. We love sharing, so pour a glass of vino, and let's dive into the past. Today, we're excited to have a guest joining us, author Leisha Cornwall. On this episode, we'll be talking about the history of photography, the Berlin Olympics, and how Hitler attempted to control how the Nazis were viewed on the world stage. Yay! Welcome, Leisha. Hi. Hello, Lori. Hi, Hi, Eliza. It's nice to be here. So great to have you here with us. So before we dive into this intriguing episode, first we want to talk about what we're drinking. Alicia, why don't you go first? Okay, I have a wee dram of uh, Laphroaig Quarter Cask, which is single malt scotch. And I chose that in honor of the fact that we all three of us have written Scottish <laughs> stories and Scottish historicals. Yes. So um, here's to Scottish historicals and all of us. Uh, Slangeva. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm drinking a Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. I saw this really interesting bottle. It's got like purple skulls on it. (laughs) It's called Curious Beasts and it's very delicious. Mm. Eliza and I recently recorded an episode where we were drinking the same thing and we are not drinking the same thing today, but I do have that one lined up for another episode. So that's... That's really funny. We're on the same one. I'm glad we didn't pick it both today. It, it, it may be because we both uh, yeah. typically drink red, but today I'm going uh, white wine. I'm going with Cabot Pinot Grigio, and I have a little single serve bottle because sometimes I just want a, a little bit because if I open up a, a regular size bottle, I'm the only person in my house that drinks it. Oh, yeah. I feel obligated to drink the whole thing. Oh, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed this Cabot Pinot Grigio. It's from the um, the foothills of Northern Italy's spectacular oh. Alps. I knew I was going to do that. And it's just one of my favorites. That sounds lovely. Yeah, I'll have to try it. All right, here we go with the fun part. Uh, our, our interview questions. Alicia, can you share with us what photography was like in the 1930s? Yes, I love photography. I worked at a camera store when I was a teenager. Uh, My son uses my old camera that I bought back then, still. Uh, It collects antique cameras. Smaller cameras started to be invented in the turn of the 20th century. And uh, in 1913, a German mountain climber wanted a camera that was going to be small enough to haul up the mountain with them to take pictures. And that eventually became the Leica. Mm. Uh, And the Leica was one of the first uh, compact 35 millimeter cameras. It used movie film in those days. It was sort of gave birth to uh, photojournalism because it was small enough that people could take pictures without um, sort of being noticed too much. And I would assume that being small, it, it probably revolutionized espionage as well. Yeah, I would think so. That's cool. And by the 36 Olympics, um, they were starting to introduce colored film. And they had uh, Kodachrome was introduced by Kodak in the U.S. in uh, 1935. Like the song. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Agfa was what they used in uh, in Berlin. And it was one of the first uses of it was taking pictures at the Olympics. That's awesome. So how did a woman pursue the profession of photography? And how common was it for women to become spies uh, leading up to the World War II period? Now, one of the most fascinating characters I read about uh, in my research was a woman named Edith Tudor Hart. Hmm. And she was an Austrian. 
and she trained as a photographer in Germany in the 1920s. And she took pictures of the working class neighborhoods and people because she wanted to promote her belief in communism. And eventually she married an Englishman and went to live in England. And she became a recruiter for uh, Stalin. And among the notable people that she recruited was uh, Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five who were spies for throughout the 50s. I'm not sure when exactly they were caught, but (laughs) they're very famous. And there was uh, other women were uh, like Dorothea Bork-White, who was uh, an American who took pictures of the Dust Bowl in the 1920s during the Depression for the Roosevelt administration, I believe. A lot of the most famous images of the Depression are hers. Oh, And she also went to uh, USSR uh, to take pictures of factories and workers as well later on. Mm. And uh, in England, uh, there was a society photographer named Madame Yvonne. And she was a well-born woman who made her living as a society photographer. And one of her most interesting projects was taking pictures of aristocratic ladies and society figures. Yeah, I know about her because she took pictures of Nancy Mitford. And Diana, she took pictures yes. of Diana as Venus. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was, uh, those were really fun to, to look at. As for being spies, I think women have always been spies, and I think possibly they even made better spies than men, because they were, perhaps it was unexpected. I mean, you think of Matahari. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody sort of suspected her until fairly late. That's what the premise of my character is in, in uh, that summer in Berlin. She is young and pretty and on holiday and she's taking pictures of everything and who's going to suspect a camera mad girl on on vacation (laughs) so yes yeah especially because they hardly suspected women back then anyway and especially if it just looks like she's you know on vacation I love the stories of women in World War II that were the secret agents who went over to France. And they had to be women because the men were all in prison or in work camps. um, So they'd stick out like a sore throne. So women did the job. I love it. So can you share with us a little bit about the significance and the politics of the Berlin Olympic? Uh, When the Nazis came to power in 1933, they instantly recognized the propaganda value of hosting both the Winter and the Summer Olympics in Germany in 1936 and began preparing for it. Now, a lot of the rituals that they created to sort of tie themselves back to ancient noble peoples like the Greeks, we still use today. Like the torch relay, where you go to Olympus and you get the the torch and you you carry it to the site. They invented that, uh, and we still use that. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't either. That's cool. Everything was sort of designed to showcase the power and the strength uh, and the superiority of of Germans uh, as athletes and as society. While they were curbing everything negative that might shock tourists, like all the anti-Semitism was suppressed and um, any press was suppressed and anybody who's likely to cause trouble was taken well out of the way. And Hitler was wandering around saying, oh, this is a fabulous, uh, we, we want only peace and this is a celebration of the glory of Germany. It was easy for people to believe that when they saw it. But behind the scenes, he was actually uh, giving giving orders to rearm. Conscription had started. And he he wrote a memo during the, the Olympic Games, a secret memo that said, I want to be ready 
to go to war within four years, and it only took them three. Wow! So, and they were they were already building concentration camps, including one just very near Berlin, minutes travel from the arenas and the glorious sports exhibits. So crazy how he was such an awful person, but he had the knowledge to put out the propaganda Absolutely. to show quite the Absolutely. opposite of what he was. And he used everything at his power, like movies and radio and even t- even television. And, and you look at movies like he had Lenny Riefenstahl, the woman who filmed all the Nazi rallies. He had her make a film called Olympia. And it's like the glory of bodies oh, and, yeah. and uh, like it's it's just amazing to watch. It really is. So what other kinds of sinister preparations was Hitler making behind the scenes as he put on a show for the people of the world? Well, he sent the, the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, off to fight in Spain under the um, disguise of being a glider club. And uh, so they were sort of there to learn how to wage war. It's so, crazy how you have to second guess anything that a government is yes. sending somewhere. And he was, uh, I mean, after the Winter Olympics, everybody said, oh, he means no harm at all. And eight days after those games ended, he invaded the Rhineland, I think it was, and waited for the world to see see what they were going to do. And nobody did anything. So he was very encouraged. And the same thing happened after the Summer Olympics. He invaded, uh, I think, the Sudetenland. Mm. During your research, you probably uncovered lots of interesting tidbits. Can you give us three fun facts that you dug up? Well, I love researching books, and I, I think it comes in three phases. You have the magpie phase, where you're running around looking at anything shiny and go, ooh, could that make a book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then comes the yeah. wormhole phase, where you know you start reading something and it takes you in 20 different directions until you were wondering what you were looking up in the first place. <laughs> and then the yeah. last stage is the aha moment, when you find that fact that will allow you to pin a story on it. And for me, the aha moment yeah. was, I read about uh, the fact that the British, uh, between the wars, sent their debutantes over to Germany. Then they were, it was sort of for a little bit of continental polish and uh, and some uh, t- to get experience of other countries and hopefully also to intermarry. Now, the, the premise was that if the highest levels of society were intermarried, then they couldn't possibly go to war, that those classes would prevent it. Uh. And of course, that didn't work. But there were debutantes going over to Germany, even in 1939. Yeah, one of um, Nancy's sisters yes. actually did that with a bunch of friends. They went for the premise of learning German language and befriending everybody. Of course, it really backfired because she became like really uh, unit, close with Hitler. Unity but- <laughs> Amazing ladies, the Mitfords. (laughs) Well, the second interesting fact was the friendships that formed during the games and the sort of stories behind the sports. And one of them was uh, Jesse Owen and a German athlete named Lutz Long. And they became very good friends. And and Lutz Long was giving him tips on how to improve his, uh, his long jump. He got into a lot of trouble with the officials saying, no, you can't be friends with this person. He's an American. He's black. He's a competitor. And very sadly, Lutz Long later died at Stalingrad during the war. 
So that was sad. Oh, no. That is sad. And then the, the last fascinating fact was how many foreign journalists were working in, in Germany in the 1930s and how they perceived the games. Now, a lot of them were completely taken in and they became quite uh, fans of Hitler and they were sort of disseminating this opinion around the world. I mean, not all of them were, of course, and uh, but one of them w- that was not was a Canadian journalist named Matthew Halton. And he was uh, one of the premier journalists of his day and he, he reported through the 30s and uh, the war and it turns out that he is from quite close to where I live. Oh wow. He's buried in uh, Pincher Creek, Alberta. So this summer one of my goals is to go down and find his his grave <laughs> and thank him I guess. <laughs> I love that. Oh yes. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! So, tell us about your book, That Summer in Berlin. It's about a young woman who is uh, a member of the English aristocracy. His father, her father was a major in World War One, and he was gassed and uh, later died, but he was mm. considered a hero. And she just hates Germany and Germans because she considers those as the people who killed her father. But her sister gets a chance to go over to she's one of the debutantes who goes over to spend time with family friends and they send Vivian, the heroine, over to chaperone her. And also they ask her to sort of help them prove that Hitler is rearming and that he has plans that are a little bit more nefarious than just showing the world a good time. Mm -hmm. So they ask her to take her camera and they pair her with a young journalist and she's it's up to her to sort of prove that everything is is not as it seems and she expects to see all sorts of things and she doesn't she does eventually get into trouble she has to sort of fight her way out that sounds really fascinating i'm very excited about it thank you <laughs> what are you reading right now what am i reading right now um well i just finished reading Alex Rickloff's uh, The Girls in Navy Blue. Oh, yeah, I love that It was one. so good. And that's coming out in the fall. That's one of the perks of being a writer. You get to read everyone else's stuff early and just gush over it. <laughs> um, yes. I'm also reading The Last Call at the Hotel Imperial by Deborah Cohen, oh. which is about... Th- I think I've heard of that one, too. Yeah, it's about three American journalists in the 1920s and 30s who sort of went and uh, reported on all sorts of things. And one of them was a woman who became the first foreign bureau chief, female foreign bureau chief in Berlin. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's a really good book. And I also have on my Kindle, and I've uploaded it, the Mayfair Bookshop. (laughs) So, oh, that sounds familiar. (laughs) I just started it. (laughs) Thank you. It's so good so far. I've only done, I've only read like uh, a dozen pages, and I can't wait to get back to it. Oh, thank you so much. That was a fun book to read. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with readers about your book? 
it's got strong female character, and the gentleman in the book is a Scot, and I put (laughs) Scots in all my books. We love that. (laughs) And and sort of tie them back to my Scottish romances, so in some way. I try to do that, too. (laughs) It's a a little... uh, breadcrumb clue thing to for people yes. who read the other yes. books <laughs> so, so I like that's that. fun that's fun yeah. so where can your readers find you i'm on uh social media i'm on facebook and instagram and um i have a website at www.leishacornwall.com and you can sign up for my newsletter and if you email me and my email is on my website I will always reply. <laughs> so yay. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I love your book cover and your book sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm super oh, excited about you. it. And it was great having you today. Yeah, it was. It was so much fun. Oh, it was wonderful to be here. We appreciate you letting us pick your brain. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. It was lovely drinking with you. <laughs> it's about happy hour. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode with Leisha Cornwall. Tune in next week when I'll be bringing you the history of St. Nicholas Day. We have guest author Madeline Martin on the schedule. Then I'll be letting you know how people stayed warm in the olden days and didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I came up with that idea when I was freezing in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Leisha. Yes, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. For more information about today's episode, click on the show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HistoryBKSWine for additional historical tidbits and updates. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcast. That way you're notified every time a new episode is live. Subscribes and reviews help us get noticed. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to check out our episodes published weekly on Tuesdays. Until next time. Cheers. And happy reading. The first time I used Instacart was with my sister. We were baking cookies and I'd forgotten the butter. Instacart to the rescue. Now I even use it when we're on vacation so our staples are delivered right to our door. Save yourself that trip to the market. Instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area to shop and deliver groceries from your favorite stores. Follow the link in our show notes and that lets Instacart know we sent you and help support our show. Plus, you'll get free delivery on your first order over $35. There's multiple stores available in most areas. Shop all your favorites on a single order. The products you love from local stores. Hand-selected by shoppers based on your preferences. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Instacart highlights deals to help you save money. Find everything you usually buy and get smart suggestions for new items. They pick the freshest produce and keep your eggs safe too. Let Instacart shop for you. Hello, listeners. This is Lori, and I'm here to tell you that podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. We use Buzzsprout, and it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll get a great looking podcast website, detailed analytics, and more. 
Following the link in our show notes lets Buzzsprout know that we sent you. Get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed.